So what happened next? So what happened next was, you know, I had been away for a few years and had been sidetracked into, you know, other things in life that, you know, stopped me from getting back as a sannyasi immediately after life living enlightenment process. Um, so the whole organization had been restructured in a way that was totally new even to me. Like what changed between 2010 and 2015 was that they introduced a new hierarchy into the organization called SMKT. And it stands for Sri Mahant Mahant Kotari and Tanidar, which is a designation of people. Um, the Sri Mahants were like the top of that pecking order. They were the people closest to Niti um, who take directions directly from him. He communicates with them. They have a private Facebook group where he sends them blessings. And the Sri Mahants take responsibility for big countries and all the temples within those countries um, or even you know continents like there was a Sri Mahant of Europe, a Sri Mahant of North America um, and then all the temples and major cities within those zones each had somebody called a Mahant and the Mahants reported to the Sri Mahants and it was the Mahants responsibility to make sure enough people are being brought for the programs from their center uh, and enough people are coming for the daily meditations and to watch Niti's discourses. Below the Mahants were Kotaris, and these were like the regional volunteers who ran the temples, who did the majority of the paperwork, like who, who kept things going. And then the lowest on that totem pole were the Tanidars, and these are like the volunteers. And their job, say for example, if Niti announces a new program has to happen internationally, the Sri Mahants would delegate the responsibility to the Mahants to book the halls, get the venues set up, but they wouldn't do the work. They would give that to the Kotaris who would pass it on to the Tanidas. So it's, it's like a top-down authoritarian structure. And you were at this point in the status of volunteer? I was nothing at this point. You weren't I even you weren't even part of I this yet. I wasn't even part of this yet. I, I kind of went off on my own thing, made my YouTube channel. Um, but you were getting people to him. Exactly. And that was a that was a that was something you kept doing up until 2015. Kept oh, working yeah. on videos. Kept encouraging kept, people to go. Kept encouraging people to go, but I wasn't a part of the structure. Officially. Understood. Understood. So, and you know, this 2015 program, I attended it with my mother. She had just retired from teaching the year before. She decided to come to India with me and check it out. And so we, one of the processes introduced in this inner awakening in Varanasi was called the Mandala process. And Niti's throne, instead of being on the stage, his throne was put in the middle of the meditation hall. And... We were, we were positioned in concentric rings around his throne. And I think there were like 10 layers to these rings called a mandala. The inner circle of people were Sri Mahants. And then the second circle were Mahants. And then the third circle were Kotaris. And then the fourth circle was for Tanidars. And then everybody else. And so I was sitting in the very back with everybody else with my mom. And when Niti entered the hall, he sat down on his throne, 
and started yelling at people in his closest inner circle saying, what have you done? You know, how many people have you brought to this program? Um, what happened to this responsibility I gave you? Did you fulfill it? And if they said no, he said, move back, move back. And so he started restructuring his SMKT group in front of everybody. And there were about 600 people at this program. So for a lot of newcomers, it was strange to see this, you know, boss version of Nitti. Instead of the happy, smiling guru on the stage, he's, he's like a dictator, like a businessman, um, shuffling around the priority seating. And once, once he had kind of shifted people to where he felt they belonged based on the work they had done, he said, get Sue Davy to sit right here. And at the time, the spiritual name he had given me was Sue Davy. And I kind of looked around thinking, like, is there another Sudevi who's in the SMKT? But no, his, his assistant, Yanatma, one of the senior swamis, came up to me and said, come on, he's calling you. Come sit in the inner circle. So he sat me in the circle with the Srimahants. And he got another girl named Nitya Devi to sit kind of opposite me in that same inner circle. He had me on one side, his right, her on his left. We were in the closest inner circle. And then he announced to everybody that, you know, my videos had brought the highest number of people. So even though I wasn't officially in the SMKT, I had earned a place right at his feet. And you can imagine my spiritual ego was through the roof. Like, wow, he called me of the 600 people in this hall. You know, the avatar himself chooses for me to be in his inner circle. And, and just so, that, and just in case anybody's thinking, what's the big deal? That's so obvious. Come on, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah. Dude, when you're sitting with 600 believers, yeah, right, that they all think this guy has secret knowledge and lore and he survived the slings and arrows of yeah. the world and you are then specifically by name called up and you get to sit next to this guy. Yeah. Right. There is nobody who would not be a bit yeah. awe inspired by this and start yeah. thinking, oh, man, this is the shit. I am the bomb yeah. diggity, man. That is. Yeah, For absolutely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my mom was crying because she knew how hard I had worked just to be accepted into that program. And and so for her, it's like her daughter achieved her ultimate goal of life, which is to be in Swamiji's inner circle. We called him Swami G. Swami G. <laughs> Swami yeah. G. Yeah. In the house. Yeah. No, no gangster intention. G is yeah. like the, the Sanskrit honorific. It's it's like um like son in Japanese. Like if, if I call you uh, Chris, son or Chris G, it's like the spelled J I. So he's a Swami who we honor. So Swami G. Got it. It is it is a funny translation to English though, given the darn hilarious. Yeah, yeah exactly. given the gangster thing. It, it is kind of it is kind of funny. Yeah, he is a G. So uh, I, I like calling him Swami G more than Nitty or Nityananda. Because it gives him too much too much respect. You know, I the the group of us who have left, our nickname for him is Poops. You know, we just refer to him as Poops. Because poops. that the way the, the seriousness of who he is and so we, in our chats and in our discussions about him we'll say well did you see what poops is saying now it's so stupid people fall for it how did we ever believe in that right um, right yeah right. he he called me to his inner circle and he praised me in front of everybody and said that i had brought more people to that program and you know 
He also praised Nitya Devi, who later was given the name Maha Yoga, and me, Sue Devi. I was eventually given the name Swarupa Priya. He praised the two of us for being active on social media around the clock and for putting his mission as a priority over our own life and constantly praising him and sharing his discourses and inspiring others. So he set us up as the example for people. And, you know, throughout that program, whenever he gave a blessing to his inner circle, he would first give it to, to her and to me. And, you know, he gave us each a pair of earrings. He gave me his armband. He, he really made people jealous. And this is something that he does. He deliberately singles out individuals as examples and makes other people strive to be like them. So the goal here was to make everybody stay up around the clock, active on social media, bringing people to him. What Nitya Devi was doing at that time, she was having huge sessions on Zoom where she would invite all the people who wanted to attend Inner Awakening but couldn't afford it. And she was helping them break through their incompletions with wealth, which ultimately means take out bank loans, borrow from friends, mortgage their houses, you know, let go of the fear. Um, one, of, one of the famous quotes Nithi had made is, money doesn't matter. If you have a 401k, why are you saving for retirement when you could do something to enrich and cause your life now? You know, cash it in, come to the program. Right so out of she, right out of Scientology's playbook. Exact almost word for word. Well, like I said, he's a big fan of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Yeah. So um throughout that 21-day program, it was a 21-day program, I decided all the goals I had set in my life up till then were nothing compared to the thrill that I got from sitting so close to Nithi. So I decided now I'm really going to do it. I'm going to get rid of everything in my life and go and become a sannyasi. So I did. Um, I went back in, first I returned to Canada with my mother when the program ended. I sold all my stuff, you know, closed up my business. I had an online jewelry shop and said my goodbyes to everyone in my family and moved back to India in late August of 2015. And immediately, like after getting back to the ashram, I was given so much praise by Nithi. Like my first day there, he called me to the green room behind his stage during one of the free programs he had for Indian people. So again, I'm walking through like thousands of people gathered in his hall onto the stage behind the curtain, which is always such a mystical thing. Like what's back there? We don't know. I got to go behind the curtain. It was like going to see the great and powerful Oz. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there he was lounging in his green room with his little personal team. And he asked me, what do you want? Coffee, tea, snacks, ask for anything. They'll bring it for you. Um, and he said that, you know, I would be a part of his inner circle group and leading a Hindu think tank and that we would strategize how to bring Hinduism to the world. And you know, one of the political moves he made because he was not well liked by politicians in India or by traditional Hindu leaders in India, he was seen as a self-styled God-man, not as somebody who falls within the, the traditional structure and framework. He, he wasn't given his post by, he wasn't made the successor to a predecessor. He kind of popped up and declared himself. So to ingratiate himself to the 
formal Hindu community that had previously rejected him, he decided he had to find a way to make them more popular. You know, to get them to approve of him, he had to, you know, do something for them. And so we were going to have a Hindu think tank and he invited famous Hindu people like the scholar Rajiv Malhotra, who is a, you know, an Ivy League Hindu educator, um, started inviting him to gatherings and reaching out to the leaders of other organizations to gather. And he wanted me to be a part of that team. And he told me whenever he travels, I would get to travel with him and that my main responsibility would be the intellectual work. He, he gave me the script for inner awakening and said, you know, he's going to step aside and just be there for the energy darshan to bless people. But there would be a team of teachers who conduct the sessions. And he, he made me one of the teachers on that team. And, you know, it, it was really exciting. This, this seemed to me like a dream come true. It was what I wanted. And there were a few red flags that I saw that, you know, led me to believe this might go sour really quickly because I saw people who used to be on his main teacher's team getting treated like shit. You know, he was yelling at them and, and growling at them. And, you know, there was one day that the lady who was the head of his accounting team, um, you know, I saw him call her up and, and he made a face at her like, and he actually growled like a, like a mad dog. And, and, you know, started cursing her out in Tamil. And I didn't know the words, but I knew like, this is bad. And she was just shaking and cowering and running away. And I started to think like, what will I have to do wrong? What mistake might I potentially make that could get me in the doghouse like these other people? Um, so it finally happened, you know, a, a few months later, we went to do a huge December program called Nityanandoham in Phuket, Thailand. And, you know, he had a travel team with him. I was part of the team, of course, there to conduct the program as one of the teachers. And, you know, those of us teaching the sessions kind of worked it out when we would take naps and when we would go to the hall. None of us were getting a full night's sleep. We were kind of working in shifts, two hours here, two hours there. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so your life was not a, a life of ease and comfort. Oh. God, no, no. <laughs> well, I just want to be clear because you're, you're living the dream now. You're in the inner yeah. circle. You know, yeah. you're, you're about, you're, you're as pamp, you know, you're in the, the best place you can be in well, this organization. Yes, yes and no. As far um, as everybody thinks. As far as everybody thinks. Right, but the reality that, was. The reality was he had a team of people living in what he called his palace, which was a, a building where he had his bedroom. And he had a courtyard with a swing and a private kitchen that made food for all of them. Those were the people on his personal team. I was there on his public team, not his private life team. So I still slept in the dorm with all the other serfs. You know, I, I was one of the people um, eating in the main Audinum kitchen, you know, living on white rice and sambar. The people who were really the elite of the elite had rooms in his building and ate the food prepared by his kitchen. I wasn't there yet. Um, okay, so what? So publicly, he had put you by his feet. He had right. made you a teacher. He had yeah. made you in charge of, you know, the messaging. 
Um, but you weren't yet actually in the inner circle. No, the, the inner circle, they call it the SM team, which stood for Satcha Lamurti team, which means the people who serve the living God. They lived in his building. They ate food made by his team of chefs in his private kitchen. Um, they were, you know, in charge of cleaning his room and getting him dressed for his stage appearances. And they were like his secretary team. And no, it's I like was his domestic of, staff. Yes, like his domestic staff. Okay. Okay. Were, so you weren't, so were you ever going to be in that inner circle? I made it there by late 2016. Okay, so so being in so being a domestic staff member for yeah. him or being in that place, yeah. did that also have other external responsibilities or was it yeah. totally focused on him? Yes, yeah, yeah. those were also the people that everyone else had to report to. He didn't okay. give those people personal instructions. Okay. So the head of his domestic team is Ranjitha, that same actress who was in the sex tape with him. Right. She became the very top of his hierarchy. Uh, he gave her the name Manatinanda Mai Swami, and everyone else in the organization was beneath her. Um, okay. So when he called me to sit in his inner circle at the program, that was like being the top tier of program participants. I was never backstage with him with his actual team during that program. I was only close to him in the program hall. So there was always this feeling among people in his ashram that you haven't really made it until you eat in his courtyard and right. live in his building. And no, I never became one of his domestic serving team, um, but I did eventually get a room in his building. Okay. Um, but before that, like at, at this program, Nityanandoham in Thailand, I finally got a taste of being scolded by him and, and being sent to the doghouse. And it, it was really shocking um, because, you know, the only two hours of sleep that I had gotten in, say, a three-day period happened when I decided to skip one of the sessions conducted by a different teacher, went back to my room to clean up, get dressed, catch like an hour nap. And when I went back to the hall, Nitti was sitting outside of the hall with his personal team and he yelled at me, you know, Swarupa Priya, where is your integrity? Why are you coming late for the session? Why were, why were you not here for the session? And I knelt down at his feet and said, this was my only time to go take rest and get changed. And he said, couldn't you have found time to take rest and get changed when participants are not in the hall? And he told me that it was my responsibility to be in the hall with the participants throughout every session. Even, even when other teachers are teaching, I had to be there because he said that if somebody has a problem, they need a friendly face to help them. I had to be that person. So my, my nightly sleep went from, say, four hours at the most, two hours at the least, down to non-existent. And so I felt like a living zombie. Like I was walking around, sometimes falling asleep on my feet, but I had to be in the hall all the time. And he stopped acting friendly towards me at that point. Okay. Um, there, there was a time when he was doing this mandala process and somebody in the hall clapped their hands really loudly at a time when everyone was supposed to be in silent meditation. And he called me and said, who clapped? And I told him, I don't know. And he said, how dare you sit in the hall and not know everything everyone is doing? And he said, find out who clapped, blast them, which means yell at them, 
and then report back to me. So eventually I found out who clapped was somebody sitting directly behind me, four rows back, literally in my blind spot. And when I reported back to him, I said, I found out who it was. It's a man who was sitting directly behind me, four rows back. He clapped. He said, did you blast him? And I said, yes. He said, will he do it again? And I said, no, he knows he will be sent back out of the program if he does it again. And he said, good. And then he goes like this, this, he would dismiss people when he was done talking to them. There was no formality of high by, like he was a dictator. You, you approach him like a groveling peasant in front of a monarch or you don't approach him at all. Um, so that program was really hard on me emotionally because up until then, he was always really friendly with me and really sweet with me. And I thought that we had a rapport uh, and that we had a true spiritual connection and that he recognized my devotion and treated me accordingly. Suddenly I realized I'm just a working dog. And if I don't meet his very difficult expectations, he'll send me away just as easily as anybody else. And, you know, that led really on a slippery slope because the worse he treated me, the less devotion I had for him. And psychologically speaking, some people um, respond to neglect or to negative reinforcement by trying harder. On me, it had the opposite effect. I started to think, well, fuck this. Why am I dedicating my life to somebody who's an asshole? I don't need to be treated like this. This is not what I signed up for. I came here to be on his, you know, on his team, Hindu think tank. I came here to be a teacher. I came here to raise myself spiritually. Um, if he's going to treat me like crap, I would rather just keep running my YouTube channel from home where I'm happy. Um, I don't need this. So eventually, and of course, the less devotion I had, the meaner he was to me. And, and it was just like a, downward spiral from there yeah dwindling spiral dwindling spiral and you know finally in the spring of 2016 there was another kumbha mela and we all packed up the ashram and went to ujain another you know sacred river city and at that program he invited all of his disciples who whoever wanted to come as a volunteer they could attend for free and to put it into context, like the, the program in Thailand cost $10,000 for participants. Volunteers had to pay a, a smaller fee, but even the people who were there as volunteers had to pay for the blessing to be there. So suddenly he announces the Kumbha Mela, anyone who wants to volunteer can come for free. And so we had about 2000 people there. And there were no tents built. The, the people who came as volunteers had to do the manual labor of installing toilets and building the tents and laying bricks as a ground. And it became really difficult because there were two tornadoes that to tore through the camp while we were there. And of course he was laughing and saying, you know, all the mud that people are getting stuck in and all the clothing that's blown away, that's just to test you. Um, whoever has the endurance will say, okay, we don't have working plumbing and we don't have hot water and we barely have any food, but if anybody leaves, that is Guru Droha. That's a crime against him. And they've ruined their, their lifetime of enlightenment possibility. And it was a work camp. It was definitely a work camp. And those of us who were there as sannyasis, there weren't enough bunk beds for everyone to sleep. So we had to sleep on the floor. And the floor was like 
a fabric tarp over top of mud. There, there were literally mud puddles seeping up through that that we were sleeping on. So almost everyone got violently ill with you know vomiting and diarrhea. And um, I didn't actually get the stomach illness, but I, I had the shivers constantly. And it was about 50 degrees Celsius, which is like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but I still felt cold and shivering. So who knows what kind of a fever I had. Um, there was no medical attention given to us because we were told if you're sick, you're burning your incompletions. So you expect this pampered Western lifestyle of having a bed. You have to sleep on the floor. It's your, it's basically your arrogance is burning through in the form of this illness. Go through it. Don't complain. Don't ask for help. Don't go to the hospital. And it was hell. Um, we were put onto what he called survival teams. And the survival teams were not given a time to sleep or a time to eat. They were basically put to work. Uh, one group was a security team who had to work the front gate, not let anybody out. And when participants came in, like he was giving darshan to sometimes up to 20,000 people a day, locals and pilgrims, um, the security team had to make sure that nobody came in with a weapon and that they came through the temple um, properly and went up to the stage with the right reverence. I was on a team called the temple team. And so I had to stand in the temple, sometimes for 24 hours at a stretch, standing, not allowed to sit down, greeting people who came in to see the deities. And, you know, at one point, five days had gone by that I didn't eat food. Um, I only drank the water that people brought because we didn't have water in the temple. And, you know, we got really weak. I, I started passing out, you know, behind the deities, wherever I could. I, I would sit down and just sleep until somebody dragged me up and put me back to work. Um, and I heard that the kitchen team had it even worse than the temple team. So I don't know what those poor people went through. But by the end of that program, I had decided when this Kumbh Mela is over, I am done. Like I'm dropping out, I'm going back to Canada. This is not the lifestyle I signed up for. This is, this is hell. And, you know, I, I, sh I tried to leave the day before that program ended, but I was stopped at the security gate and told I didn't have approval to go. And so Nyana Maswami, the same lady who had brought me to the inner circle at the inner awakening in Varanasi, brought me to Niti's bedroom. And I mean, that was a wake-up call, seeing that the rest of us have been sleeping on a muddy floor and not eating. Suddenly I see his room and it's an air-conditioned tent with a beautiful bed and lots of nice furniture and people serving him some delicious food while the rest of us have been, you know, starved and, and sleep-deprived and overworked and he's living in the lap of luxury. Um, but he called me to him and he gave me a huge hug and he said, you can drop your coffee and go back, but don't lose your feeling connection. You're here for enlightenment. Um, it was like a masterminded gaslighting. He said, I'm sorry that you weren't ready for this kind of training. I, I shouldn't have tried to train you like one of my top people when you weren't ready for that yet. It's okay. Um, go back. Oh my God. This is yeah. fucking like master class yeah. of gaslighting. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, we wow. used to say master is the master surgeon. Now we say master is the master manipulator. Yeah. Um, wow. So yeah, 
he he convinced me to go back to Canada as a Kotari of the organization and take care of the city of Calgary and help plan their events and, and be one of his team members in the world. So all of the all of the love and sweetness and gratitude that I had felt in the beginning, back at that time when I was supposedly going to be a teacher in his think tank and one of his, you know, chosen few people, that all came rushing back again. And it's easy to forget about your mistreatment and the abuse you've endured when your abuser, uh, I wouldn't say apologizes. It's like he apologized for the fact that I wasn't ready for that yet. Right. Um, but, you know, when he convinced me to keep my feeling connection alive and stay connected to him, and that's when he started really love bombing me. Uh, when I got back to Canada, he had put hearts on all of my pictures on Facebook. Um, he had commented on something saying, I miss you, dear. And this man claims he never misses anybody, that if, if people come and go, it's their gain or it's their loss, but he has no attachment to anyone. He doesn't miss anyone. So my inbox was filling up with messages from his other disciples saying, how could you break Swamiji's heart like this? He misses you. He never misses anybody. How could you have left him like that? You know, you're supposed to be there. You should go back. <coughs> Jesus, man, this is amazing. I mean, only because it's such a, it's such a, a, a blatant, obvious example of that abusive relationship that I'm constantly harping on, you know, is the, is the abuser the, is, this is such battered wife syndrome in that, you know, the, 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 you know, people don't, and I commented on this recently elsewhere, but it bears repeating. It's not all bad. No, you know, it's, it's, it's periods of just sheer hell awfulness, but those are tempered by these moments of, spiritual clarity and beauty right. and bliss and wonderfulness right. because if those don't exist then the hell is too much to endure and you were literally ready to walk out the door yep. he sees that and goes okay now it's time for the sweet yeah you know i've, I've given exactly. her the sour now it's mm -hmm. time for the sweet and you play people that way that's how that's how abusers play people and it's yep. you know and it is both of those things yep. you know and it's really, really important to remember that and note that because because uh, without the good times, you know, it's you're not going to stay right. So you need yeah, those yeah. little bits. But even the little good times are awful, really, as you're yeah. pointing out here. You know, they're yeah. just gaslighting. They, they were, and I didn't know the term gaslighting at the time. This is only because after I left, I started googling and researching cults and cult leaders and cult dynamics i didn't know the term love bombing either or else i would have recognized it as that exactly so you know i i was still very naive and very devoted to him and so when he said i tried to train you like one of my core people sorry you weren't ready for that dear i'll, I'll treat you sweetly now because that's your level of devotion um he also laid on a, a shaming and a guilting where i felt guilty that I needed to be treated well. Because if I was more spiritually evolved, like his core team of people, I could endure his master training and, and not run away from it. Right. So he, he really, um, you know, it's a total mind fuck. There's no other term for that it. That is he, absolutely the best term for it. I'm glad you said it out yeah. loud. That is exactly yeah. what he's doing. He messes with our minds.
Yep. So I'll never forget. It was August 16th of 2016. For the very first time, he sent me a private message through Facebook Messenger. And he said, dear, are you there? Um, I replied, yes, Swamiji, I'm here. And he asked, you know, I have a big favor to ask you. Could you spare two hours a day for Swamiji's mission? Could you dedicate two hours a day to me? And of course, I was in full gaga mode. Oh my God, he's writing to me. You know, his inbox is only for life and death emergencies. And here, you know, the avatar himself is taking time out of his schedule where he cares for the universe just to write to me like wow and so i said of course so you know anything and he told me to start researching different concepts related to hinduism and start up the hindu think tank work again so he told me you know search for evidence that the joined family lifestyle is better you know than the western single family lifestyle um, search for proof that the vegetarian diet is healthier than non-veg search for proof that wrapping the sari is better for the energy circuits in the body than jeans in a t-shirt. So basically an ethnocentric view of Hinduism, he wanted me to start finding research that could substantiate his claims that the Hindu lifestyle is the healthiest, best lifestyle. And so I did, I started researching any topic he gave me and you know, sending back to him in his inbox, whatever links I found. Um, that means, you know, proof of things like reincarnation, um, lots of things that, you know, are pseudoscience, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that can convince somebody. So I was sending him, you know, anything I could find about any topic he requested. And then finally, um, I got a message from Ranjita, his closest aide, that Nitti had given her the instruction to start a YouTube channel. But she said, without you and your expertise, how could I possibly start a YouTube channel? I can't do it without you. So I told her, okay, well, whenever you want to film a video, get me on Zoom or get me on Skype and I'll, I'll walk you through it. And she said, no, I really need you here physically to do that. And so I told her, okay, you know what? I'll save up for a plane ticket, put my business on hold and I'll, I'll come out for a couple of weeks. Then immediately she says, Good news, Swamiji blessed you to join this free program called Nityananda Yogam. And because of your sincerity, we'll pay for your plane ticket. So they flew me back. Two days later, they had a ticket booked for me. And, you know, when I got there for that free program, um, again, it was the, the love bombing. Everybody's saying, we're so glad you came back. We missed you so much. Um, they gave me a room in Nithi's building. This, it, they called it Anandapuri. So I had a room that I shared with the head of his, um, the head of his legal team, actually. I stayed in his, what he called the asset room. So all of his stores of golden jewelry and gemstones and all the, all the cash was in that room. And he said, this shows the trust I have in you is that I'm putting you with our most valuable possessions. And it's only in retrospect that I realized, okay, he considered me to be a valuable possession. But at the time... <laughs> right. <laughs> he called it the asset room. Of course yeah, you were. Asset. You, that's right. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't catch that at the time. That only came when I thought back on it later. Right. But yeah, he, the love bombing started again and he started praising me to everyone. And, you know, Ranjita praised me for helping her start her YouTube channel. 
And then he made me the head of the social media team. And he made me a mahant. He gave me a, a big mahant mala with 2,000 Rudraksha seed beads on it, really valuable thing. Um, praised me in front of everyone, told everybody in the ashram they had to listen to me and obey me. That's when he made me one of the leaders. And leader in the sense that I had to enforce his rules. Um, I couldn't actually come up with anything on my own. I had to follow his instructions. But then I was one of those people living in his building who he gives his instructions to and then communicates those to others. So it's like being in his chosen community. What I had dreamed of back in, you know, 2015 or the Kumbh Mela, I felt like I had finally achieved it. So he gave me the instruction that everybody in the campus had to make three YouTube videos a day, go live on Facebook three times a day, build up their profiles until they have 5,000 friends. They had to like 5,000 pages. And then they had to spam all of those friends and all of those pages with the links to his discourses. Um, it, it's interesting. I saw an interview with a lady who left Scientology and she was given the job to travel around the U.S. and create fake profiles that were used um, to basically do character assassination on dissenters and to troll the trolls. Well, Nitti did that in a less subtle way. He instructed another team. I was the head of the social media team. There was another team called the Trishul team. The social media team did all the positive building up hype and, and spamming people about him. The Trishul team, it was their job to silence the dissenters. So, you know, whoever had brought cases against him were called anti-Hindu elements. The media was called anti-Hindu paid media prostitutes. The Trishul team had to make sure that everyone in the campus created fake Facebook profiles so that whenever there was negative publicity about him, that whole team using all of their multiple profiles would report that content as religious hate speech and get it taken off and bully the people who posted it by sending messages to everyone on their friend list saying, do you know how bad of a character this friend of yours is? He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's having an affair on his wife. They would just make shit up. Jesus, this is right out of the OSA playbook. Right. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so he had two teams simultaneously building his mission on social media. Um, mine had the, the, the more fun job of promoting his meditations and, you know, walking around showing the different parts of the ashram, like, here's the welcome center, look at the beautiful plants growing here, and here's the tea we serve to guests when they come in and visit, and here's our morning yoga. And the other team had the, the kind of less fun job, in my opinion. Some people really enjoy a fight. Um, but they, they had the more serious job of silencing the dissenters. And we were told that the woman who claimed he had raped her was riddled with STDs and that it was really obvious that she's lying because Nithi doesn't have any STDs. He has a, safe, a clean bill of health. Um, and we believed that. He said that the court suppressed the evidence by not letting them um, admit her health records. And so none of us ever thought to ask to see the health records because, well, the court didn't accept it. So we don't have access to it. They're hiding something. Um, since then, I discovered she has a perfectly clear bill of health and that all those STDs were made up by Nitti and his Trishul team. 
Um, but I believed all the horrible lies they said about people who fought against him. And he said all of these ex-disciples who speak out against him are demons. Um, they've been possessed by demons and they're trying to lead people astray. So don't even look at the content they've published. Don't even read what they're writing. Just report it and move on. Block them from your profile and move on. So, you know, the, the dynamic in the ashram when I went back in 2016, he was praising me, um, treating me so nicely until I got comfortable. You know, once I felt comfortable, right. the blasting right. started again and the mean treatment started again. And yeah. I, I'll never, the day that it happened was on Guru Purnima, the full moon day where we celebrate the role of the guru in our life. Up until that day, he had treated me really sweetly. He was sending me private messages in my inbox. He called me to press his feet. Um, he was even romantically, like he sexually abused me at that point too. He put his hand down my blouse once when I was pressing his feet at night. Um, he made me believe that I was an incarnate. He told me in a private Facebook message that he is Sadashiva and I was an incarnation of the goddess Parvati, who is Sadashiva's wife. And that we were meant to be physically together. I have to. Say, I, have, I want to ask you a couple questions here about this because um, uh, I'm. Uh, do you think, in hindsight, I mean, I don't know where this is going, but just with what you're saying right now, um, do you think that this was calculated grooming? One hundred percent. Yes, I think. So. Yeah. In other um, words, prepping you for eventually sleeping with you. Absolutely. It yeah. was definitely calculated grooming. Okay. Um, and it was also dangling like a carrot. Mm -hmm. that, he said that when we finally joined together physically, that was when I would be fully enlightened and a complete incarnation of Parvati. And there then he go. would put me on a golden throne on the stage to give people darshan and that everything he's doing is building me up to that point. And thank, thank goodness it never actually reached that point. Um, so he started treating me badly again. And this time his negative treatment had the desired effect of making me try even harder to get close to him because at this point I'd had a taste of what it was like to be close to him. And I liked that attention. And so I started beating myself up over it. Like it started Guru Purnima, you know, in 20, early 2017 after I'd been there for a few months being given the star treatment, we were all gathering together in the temple in his ashram. And, you know, he has this habit when he enters the temple, he walks down a middle aisle towards the deities, women queue up on one side, men queue up on the other side, um, and his entourage follow him towards the deity. That's like the, the SM team, which I never made it to. So, Nobody is allowed to step on his red carpet. Everyone has to queue up next to it. And there was a, a local person who I saw was kind of going into a, a state where that person was going to make a run for it and try to get to Nitti. So I, I said to that person, please step back really quietly. And Nitti screamed at me, Swarupa Priya, who told you that you can be here right now? Get back. And it was crazy because we were all told we had to be in the temple. So suddenly I, I was shaken and thought, oh my God, like, was I wrong to hold that person back when they tried to run onto his red carpet? Like, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. 
And then he gave that growling, mean, angry face to me that I'd seen him once give to the head of his accounts team. And I thought, oh my God, I must be in such a low state. You know, he, he tried giving me such a, such a, a nice in to his inner circle and I failed him. So I started going into a depression. Like I, I, I wasn't ready for him. I wasn't qualified to be around him. I was failing. And then he started piling on instructions that were impossible. Like he'd already said, everyone has to make three YouTube videos a day. Um, morning yoga was moved from 5 a.m. to 4 a.m. And it was my job to go through the women's dorm and make sure everyone was there for the 4 a.m. yoga, which meant I had to be up at 3 a.m., get dressed, get ready, be in the dorm by 3.30 to wake everyone else up so they'd be there by four. And if people weren't there on time, I got yelled at and told that it's my incompletion and that I should be in a space of responsibility for everyone. And that if, if, if even one person was missing from yoga, it was because my space had dropped. And if I'm, you know, here as an incarnation of Parvati, and even I'm not able to hold the space, then I will never realize my full potential as that. And little did I know that simultaneously he was telling lots of other women who he liked that they were incarnations of Parvati and giving them their own jobs to fulfill. Like this, this was kind of his game. So I took it really seriously and tried really hard. And as soon as I succeeded at some instruction he gave, he would raise the bar of expectation that much higher. So nobody was ever fulfilling the work he gave them. We were always striving to do more because as soon as we did what we were told, we were told to do 10 times beyond that. And, you know, that reached its pinnacle in a December program called Mahasadashivoham in, you know, at the, towards the end of 2017, December, 2017, the day before that program, he called, you know, his three top acharyas, Manyanatma Swami, who does like the, the main um, director of events for the programs, a lady named Manitya Mahayogananda, who had been the girl Nitya Devi, who had also been called to his inner circle back in 2015 with me. She is the head of his team that manifests powers. Um, I forgot to mention over these years, the pull to his ashram changed from yogic body Vedic mind to manifesting the third eye superpowers of Mahasadashiva. So be able to read blindfolded, remote vision, um, body scanning, being able to look at somebody and give them like a, a medical intuition of what's going on in their bodies, um, materializing gemstones and teleporting small objects. That became the primary focus. And he told us that if we manifest these shaktis or these superpowers, that was the manifestation of our enlightenment. It proved we were on track with enlightenment. Right. Which and even more recently, he's claimed to have healed, cured blind kids. Yes. Yeah. He. Yeah. This guy does not make small claims, you know. I mean, none of it is backed up by anything like evidence, but, you know, who cares as long as you're making yeah. claims and getting enough, you know, new blood coming in who are going to believe yeah. you, you can just keep the revolving door exactly. going, you know? Exactly. Um, so Mahayoga is the one who conducts these manifesting power sessions. And, you know, the, what makes it really complicated is that a lot of us have had glimpses of experiences of these powers, which means, you know, we'll sit there blindfolded for hours holding a, a paper with words on it, 
and suddenly we'll see a flash of some golden letters in our inner space. Now that, that very well could be hypnotically induced, um, but everyone who has had this glimpse believes that the power is there and they just need to surrender to him more deeply and then they'll be able to really read blindfolded. And he gets kids on stage to demonstrate that they're reading blindfolded and he gives that as his proof. You know, the kids can do it because they're pure. They have less samskaras, less engrams. So they're an open, receptive being and they'll be able to manifest it easily. And, you know, Maha Yoga leads the team training people. And then he called me as the head of social media. So the three of us were sitting in front of him in the hall that they were constructing. And Nyanatma kind of looked around and said, you know, the construction team were supposed to have the hall finished by now. You know, how did they miss it? And he said, because the three of you are failures. You don't take responsibility for the construction team and that's why they're behind. Why weren't you running after the construction team to make sure they fulfill this? And meanwhile, none of us are getting more than an hour of sleep per 24-hour period because we've got our own impossible tasks to run up. And now he's blaming us for the failure of the kitchen team, the construction team. And, you know, if a temple puja was five minutes late, even though that's way off in another part of the campus, that's also our fault. This is, this is right out of Scientology, man. I'm telling you, there's a chapter about responsibility. Yes. That L. Ron Hubbard wrote in 1951. And it is used to browbeat people exactly yeah. the way, exa I mean, exactly the way you yeah. are describing right now. Right. In the C organization and ultimately in all of Scientology, it can yeah. be used to browbeat even public, you know, regular Scientologists, not just the guys who are worker bees. Yes. And, it's, and it is on that exact point that you are responsible for everything around yeah. you you personally and if that things aren't going right yep yeah. it's on you yeah absolutely and that is verbatim what niti would tell us you are responsible for everything that happens around you yeah and there were a few times i had the thought but didn't say it out loud then as the master of all this <laughs> you is it not your responsibility to make sure that the three of us are successful in following up with the construction team but the, these are all the little doubts i get that i wouldn't verbalize out loud because i didn't want to get punished right. and the punishment that was kind of looming as a dark cloud over all of us was banishment to the sacred arts campus which was you know about two kilometers off the main campus, there was this area called Sacred Arts University. That sounds really nice, but that was actually the garbage dump for the ashram. It was where they construct furniture and build the stages and repair the broken things. And um, not only broken things, Nithi said that's where the broken disciples go. Right. Anybody who's in completions are so huge that they can't live with the regular sangha or the, the main group of the Nithi society got sent to sacred arts. And I, I'm sorry, I just, <laughs> you know, whether he was inspired by Scientology or not, it's just amazing. I mean, you know this, you know, you know at, a, at, a, at a certain level, right? You see it happen over and over again with different cults, different groups all around the world, people who have never talked to one another, yeah. wouldn't even know that each other exists, right? These cult 
leaders. Yeah. But they do the same things yeah. over and over again. I mean, you're talking about the RPF. Right. You know, this sacred That's, arts thing was their version yeah. of they're not fit to be with us. They're right. not worthy. They've done things that are treasonous to what we are doing, what our mission is. We need to stick them over there and sequester them away, let them contemplate the error of their ways while they contribute productively to our yeah. mission anyway by doing all this low work that needs to, to be done. They did I mean, yeah. same, exact same, you know, I've just, yeah. it's just, I know this is true, and yet when it when it when you are talking about this, I'm just like Jesus, man. It is just amazing to see it play out this way over and over and over again. Absolutely, and of course, we were told it's not a punishment. It's something called prayas chitta, which means coming to the space of inner completion within yourself. So you, those people are rehabilitating themselves so that when they get welcomed back into the regular mainstream sangha, they're ready for it. They can handle the responsibility. They won't fall back into a low inner space. Do, do, so you, do you know what the RPF is in Scientology? Yes. Ron Miscavige told me about it when I came to this point in our interview too. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the Rehabilitation Project Force. It's not supposed to be punishment either. There you go. So it's, it's identical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you use that word and I thought, I wonder if she knows what RPF stands for. I didn't know what it stood for, no. <laughs> but Ron told me that's the same thing that stands. He mentioned yeah. that, you know, people in RPF had to wear all black. Yep. The people, the people who go to the Sacred Arts Campus to do Prayas Chita, instead of wearing the bright colored kavis, like bright orange for the first level and a, a darker maroon color for the full swamis, when they went to sacred arts, they had to wear a really muted kind of ochre shade. And that was a symbol of the fact that they are not complete members of our group anymore. They have to wear this prayas chita color. And, you know, the women weren't allowed to wear saris. They had to wear something that looked like pajamas when they're at sacred arts. Um, so they're walking around in, in prisoner-like uniforms. They had to sleep on a, on a concrete floor, no beds, no mattresses. They weren't served food from the main kitchen. So even though we were on kind of a high carb, low protein diet with not much diversity, at least we had vegetables every day in the main campus. Um, at least once in a while, the sandbar had some beans in it or some, some you know, chickpeas. They never got any of that. They had to fend for themselves. So they had to beg for rice. They had to cook for themselves without a proper kitchen. Um, they were all malnourished. They were all stick figures there. And the Jesus saddest man. thing, it, just, just very similarly to Scientology, people can ask, why don't they just leave? You know, the, the perimeter wall with the razor blades on top of it, those are just the physical barriers, but the mental barrier is even bigger because they're told if they leave in the middle of their prayas chita, they will never be complete. They have to go through it and get accepted back by Niti. And if they don't, they will be failures for the rest of their lives. So they believe they have to be there in that Prayaschita and that it's for their higher good. And yet the rest of us were threatened. Niti literally told me that if I didn't fulfill his expectations, you know, that day in that 
construction site where they were building the Mahasada Shivoham Hall, he literally told me, you are a third rate bloody dog. You're a failure. You have no right to even be in my life. Get lost out of my sight. He told Nyanatma and Maha Yoga, um, don't give Swarupa Priya any time on stage in the Mahasada Shivoham program. Her space has fallen. He didn't even talk directly to me. He instructed them how to deal with me. And he said, take away her social media team. She's not qualified. She's not inspiring people anymore. She's not making them do their videos. Um, you know, give that responsibility to Maprana Priya, one of the biggest bullies in his organization who, you know, when he tells me to treat people like shit, I don't have the heart to do it. That was my biggest mistake in his eyes was that I was too gentle with people. Um, he actually told me that my Canadian politeness is not a strength, it's a weakness and, and learn to be ferocious with people. So, I mean, he had instructed me to beat people with this lion stick he gave me. I never did that. I never beat anybody. He told me if someone was sick and they were missing yoga, pick them up by the feet and drag them by the ankles to the hall. And if they die, at least they'll die in the yoga session instead of in the door. So he had complete lack of compassion. And he expected that same lack of compassion for anybody running his mission. And I could never really break that last barrier from friendliness into ferociousness. As much as I tried, I mean, I did yell at people when he told me to, but I could never actually beat people when he told me to. Um, and I, I, could, I would take metal plates and bang on the bed frames in the morning saying, get up for yoga, it's time for yoga. But I could never take it that step further to literally physically removing somebody from the bed and dragging them. I never laid hands on anybody. And so that made me a failure. So the people who were ready to be completely immoral bullies, those were the people he praised. And it, it got really difficult in that Mahasadashivoham program. That was well, you're, you're, you're basically describing a situation where you're being run by a bunch of psychotics. Yes. I mean, that's and really what you're describing here. And it's, and it's uh, you know, well, I, there's just no word for this except it's psychotic. It's psychotic. And I mean, I've, I've like I said, I've spent the last year researching cults and he yeah. has, he checks every box on the checklist yeah. for narcissist and for a psychopath. And yeah. so he told us that the difference between unenlightened and enlightened is that once you're enlightened, you no longer feel sad when somebody else is hurt around you. You don't have this dirty quality of sympathy and empathy where you feel their pain. And he said, sympathy and empathy is nothing but when somebody else is in a lower state, they drag you down. You should always lift them up instead of being dragged down. And these are qualities of a, of a psychopath. Somebody who has no empathy and no sympathy, who doesn't feel bad when somebody gets hurt in front of them. He called those enlightened qualities. He actually of course he did. It's it's yeah. it's all the same redefinition of words. Redefinition you know, of words. Redefinition of words until yeah. your psychosis makes complete sense and is an enlightened yeah. point of view. And you know, much to my chagrin, I never made it to that level of psychopath. So I was always a third-rate bloody dog and the total failure in his eyes. And you know, eventually I started really feeling rebellious. And, you know, after that Mahasada Shivoham program, I was in the doghouse. I, I started 
skipping the morning yoga, sleeping through the routine, deciding if they kick me out, they kick me out, but I'm, I'm finally going to do what I want to do. Forget this. This is stupid. And when it was time for me to go home to renew my visa in February of 2018, it was like, I don't like to use the word miracle because that's still magical thinking, but it was an awesome awesome coincidence <laughs> that exactly at the time when I was at home to renew my visa contemplating you know should I stay in Canada or should I go back to India you know why is this so hard for me perfectly aligned coincidence was that I turned on the television which we don't have in his ashram and Leah Remini's series Scientology in the Aftermath was on a two-day marathon back-to-back episodes so you're fucking kidding me no this i did is why not it, know it, this it, about your story this is like this is cool yeah and that i really she's she is like my hero this, yeah she's mine too yeah i mean this series was the very first time i heard anybody describing the tactics that had been used on me and my friends in a way that tells us it's bad she described, I'm not she herself, the people she was interviewing described being bullied into spending all of their money on the organization, just like we had been. Yep. Um, she, they, they, these people described disconnecting from their family and friends, which is what we also had to do. If anybody abused the master or committed Guru Droha and spoke against Nippi, we were instructed to block them on all social media, shun them, don't answer their calls, don't ever talk to them, don't set foot in their house. They're not allowed in your life anymore. So we also had to practice. It wasn't called disconnection, but it was the same damn thing. So hearing people describe how Scientology had destroyed their lives and what had been done systematically to destroy their lives. Like I was sitting on the edge of my seat and my mom told me afterwards that she was watching me watch that show and just praying, like, let this wake her up. Like, this is what is going to finally show her that she's in a cult and she's being mistreated. And my mom was really careful all along never to say anything bad about this organization because she didn't want me to disconnect from her. You know that you and I parallel on that exactly. Interesting. My mom, who, was, who raised me as a Scientologist, yeah. got out while I was still mm -hmm. in at the same level equivalent to what you were. And she did the exact same yeah. thing. She was always careful yes. to talk to me, to let me know that, you know, that there was love, that there was caring, that we had this great relationship. Yeah. I could always talk to her about anything. And I often did, but she never was critical of the church because she knew if she started laying that on me, you know, yeah. we were, we lived apart. We were distanced. Yeah. There was not going to be time to repair anything. And I would have to disconnect. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's cool. Your mom's cool. I like your she's mom already. She's, she's <laughs> awesome. And she also wanted to maintain the fact that whenever my visa expired, I went to her house. This was a boon that Nidhi had given me. Typically it is mandatory that when the sannyasi leaves, they spend however long it takes to renew their visa to get back to India, they had to spend that time at one of his temples. So for a Canadian like me, I should have been in the Toronto temple. For Americans, they go to the Los Angeles temple. 
And, you know, people resented the fact that he gave me blessings and approval that whenever my visa was due, I would go to my mom's house because she had attended so many December programs and she was, you know, quote unquote, a disciple. So they felt it was a safe place for me to be. If she went against the organization, she would lose the right to have her daughter in her house, you know, every six months. So, you know, she was watching me watch Scientology in the aftermath. And she said for her, the bells were going off like, that's the same, that's the same. Yep, they call it Prayas Chita. These people call it something else. But I hope my daughter is getting this. And, you know, I I binge watched because it was a marathon on A&E, I watched the entire series. I think this was up to the second season. So they showed both first and second season in sequential order. When it came to an end, I stayed up and kept watching because I had missed the first few episodes. And by the end of that, I changed back into Western clothes. I dropped the kavi on the ground. I sent a message to the lady Ranjita, who is his secretary and said, I'm done. I'm never coming back. I'm dropping out now. And I got love bombed again. Nitti, within two minutes, sent me an inbox message saying, my blessings for you to succeed with anything you want in life, dear. Tell me anything you want. I'll I'll bless you to get it. And my space was such that I recognized the organization was a cult equal to Scientology, but I still believed Nitti himself was an incarnation. I was still mind fucked. I was still confused as hell. And I knew I do not want to live the life of a Nityananda disciple, but I still didn't want to hurt or go against the guru. So within two days, he messaged with me on Facebook Messenger nonstop. I mean, he, he told me, dear, do you mind if, if Swamiji takes some rest now? I'm, I'm going into Samadhi, which is what he'd claim because he can't admit that he sleeps like a regular human being. You know, I'm going to go into Samadhi and read your Akashic record and find out what your life is meant to be. You know, may I go now, dear? I'll, I'll write to you first thing in the morning. So he was messaging me back to back, nonstop, throughout this entire two days. And he got me back. Even after I had seen the series, he convinced me to go back by saying he played the pity card again. And he said, I am an orphan. That, that he himself, he said he is an orphan, which is bullshit because his biological mother lives in his ashram. But he said, you know, anybody who comes for my mission, when they get shaken, they'll run away and leave. And I explained to him exactly what problems I had with the organization. And he said, well, that shows we need you even more. You should be here to make the necessary changes. If people are being treated badly, come fix it. You're one of the leads. You have the right to stand up and assert yourself, which is bullshit. Like I would have been sent to sacred arts to do Prayas Chita, but suddenly he's building it up again that, okay, if I come back, I told him I'm, I'm not going to live sleep deprived anymore. And he made a Facebook status update that says from now on, it's mandatory everyone gets eight hours of sleep. So I thought, hey, I'm making good changes already, even from Canada. So I went back expecting the best. And I was given a VIP room that the people who donate $200,000 to the organization may have special rooms they stay in. I was given one of those rooms that had hot water, which otherwise we had to take cold water baths. And I was given exemption from the morning routine which meant I could do yoga when I felt like it instead of at 4 a.m. 
And, you know, I was given that special treatment, but inwardly I was observing everything and holding it up to, you know, the, the litmus test of what would Leah Remini say if somebody told her this was happening? And so I started to recognize- That is kind of awesome. <laughs> it is, right? Like she woke, she really woke me up that this is a cult. Mm -hmm. And I think this is named Mike Rinder, the guy who was along with her in that series. I don't Rinder, wanna... Rinder. Rinder, Rinder. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, make it sound like she's the only one. I know there was a whole team involved. Oh, in no, that. of course, of course. Um, but, but yeah, that series, that was always in the back of my head. Um, to the point that I Googled cults and downloaded this ebook called the Mind Control Manual from a website that I found about rational thinking. And I sat down with one of the other leads, Manya Natmaswamy, and went through point by point and said, okay, listen to this. Um, you know, cultic groups practice sleep deprivation on their members. They redefine terms and, and use, you know, verbal cues to keep people in check. And, you know, they have a, they follow a group mentality and us against them mentality. And they use information control. So anything critical is banned and shunned and called evil and demonic. And I went through this whole list of characteristics and told her, we need to make a change. And instead she turned it on me and said, you're right, this is a cult. But who says a cult is a bad thing? It might be that all of these cults out there are just naturally practicing Hindu enlightenment without even knowing it. And here we have the ultimate avatar himself running it. So let's just own it and declare, okay, we're a cult, but we're a good cult. And I was like, this is wrong. This is not good. <laughs> this, is, this, is this is just not what I was going for. I'm just on Mars now. Yeah. Uh, did um did that post? I'm curious about this eight hours sleep thing. When uh, you went back, right? Was that a thing? Was were people getting no. sleep? So right. here's what happened when I got back. Right. Um, I once overheard a meeting between Nitti and the Gurukul kids, the children who are the residents of his school. And he was yelling at them saying, who told you to sleep eight hours a night? And one of the kids said, Swamiji, your status update said, and he said, fool, that is for the people who need sleep, but you are superhumans. You are beyond sleep. That instruction, eight hours of sleep is for humans. If you're going to fall into your laziness and your tiredness patterns, then go ahead, sleep. He, he gets this really sarcastic tone when he wants to make somebody feel shitty about themselves. All right, you need sleep, you go sleep, go sleep, but don't be there at the temple for the ritual. I only want superhumans in the temple. So he told all of us that one of the super superpowers described in Hinduism called kutakesha means going beyond sleep and that ideally we should manifest kutakesha but if we need eight hours of sleep, we can take it in sacred arts. So nice. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. So you can get eight hours of sleep along with all the other people on the RPF. Yeah, it, that's it. That's exactly it. And of, of course, that's also a sham because if you go to sacred arts, it's a manual labor camp and you don't get eight hours of sleep there either. But you'll be in a group setting where everyone together is trying to break their attachment to sleep. Right. And I tried to explain to her why the last thing any group of people would want to be is a cult. And there was absolutely no um, processing on her. She couldn't 
possibly accept that the morning routine was being used to control people's minds. Mind control manual that I was reading to her, it says that, you know, the recipe to make somebody believe any bullshit you tell them is that you sleep deprive them, you physically exert them, then you make them go into a, a brainwave state that is less than the typical thinking state, and then you indoctrinate them. And so our daily routine started at 4 a.m. People usually went to bed after midnight, so they're sleep deprived. There's number one. Um, first thing they had to do was yoga, so physical exertion. The second thing was the puja meditation, so entering into a, a different thinking state than the typical state. Finally, it was Nitti's discourse. So it was exactly a formulaic recipe for brainwashing. And she said, but he designed this based on traditional Hinduism. I don't believe that anymore. I think he learned really cunningly how to run a cult. And then he filled in the details later to say that it's scriptural or it's as per Hinduism. Um, he tells us, wake up at 4 a.m. It's Brahma Muhurta. That's the best time to rise and shine as per Hindu scriptures. Yes, that's true. But scriptures also say go to bed at 9 p.m., which he doesn't do. So it's like he'll, he'll use a traditional Vedic concept to justify what he's doing, but he only half does it as per his agenda. So I, I was awake. I, can, I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Was he at the 4 a.m. yoga classes? Never. No. Right. There you go. No. Ah. I know that sometimes he wasn't even there for his own discourse. So one of my jobs, one of my responsibilities was that I had to stand on stage and introduce him before satsang. I was, they called me the face of the organization at this point. Um, I was in all the videos. I was in all the discourses. He used me as the Western example. When he had love-bombed me to get me back, he told me I would be the first enlightened disciple of the organization. And that if I left, I would miss out on that possibility. That's one of the things that got me back in again. Um, so he's always trying to boost our egos to justify treating us like shit. So it's like, I'm so lucky that I'm his whipping person. <laughs> so I would be there on stage. Sometimes they would tell me, Nitti is coming in 10 minutes, so give a brief introduction, summarize what he said yesterday. I'd start wrapping it up at the 10-minute point, and people would be in the tech pit, which is like the, the area beneath the stage where all of his monitors were kept. So, for example, if he started going into a scientific discourse, somebody would be frantically Googling what he's talking about to project on the screen you know, this is the person who said it, this is their direct quote, this is when it was said. So he would read off these facts and people would assume he's all knowing, but really he's just got a really fast technical team. So I'd, I'd start wrapping up at the 10 minute mark thinking he's gotta be entering the stage behind the curtain that's behind me. And they'd be going like this, going like, keep talking, keep talking. Um, and sometimes I'd have to talk for one hour, two hours. The longest it ever went on was three hours. You yeah. had to stand on a stage and ad lib for three hours? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That is, I'm telling you, that's talent. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, I wouldn't have considered it a talent at the time. I would have thought he's blessed me to do this. I can do this. <laughs> right. he, has, he has given me this capacity right. to speak right. and, and to, you know, there were times when, 
I, I would literally feel like, who I am bullshitting. Like, I'm going to get called on this bullshit. And afterwards, people would come up to me and say, what you said today was so moving. Like, that was exactly how I was feeling. Um, so again, he, he would tell me that there was a time when I was on stage ad-libbing because none of it was scripted. I would always just make things up on the spot. Um, typically based on his previous day's discourse. So I would put it in my own words, give some examples of how we were incorporating it into our lives and just reinforce whatever he had said. There was one day I, I, I assumed he wasn't there yet. And as I was talking, he started yelling at me from behind the curtain saying, you idiot, people aren't listening to you. Make them listen. There's people sleeping in the hall. Yell at them, blast them. Like he would get in this angry voice. And so... I had to keep a straight face and not show the distress that he's yelling at me behind the curtain because people couldn't pick up his voice in my mic. So I would have to say, everyone, please sit straight. Please be in the space of listening. Don't fall asleep. Swamiji won't grace us with his presence in the hall unless everyone is paying attention. And he'd yell saying, no, 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 blast them. Don't be so gentle, be ferocious. And so people thought I was this raging bitch because I'd yell at them from the stage, wake up, no sleeping, sit straight, lock the doors, don't let anybody out. They thought I was running the place like a tyrant. They don't know that everything I said, he was behind me dictating what to say. Right. So he would do things like that. That's but, how he gets away with being on stage and smiling yes. all the time. And that's how he gets to keep a smiling, friendly face on stage and never yell at people to wake up, sit straight. He had us do that for him. Yep. And it's only once a person gave up their life and lived in the Audinum, joined his order, like the Sea Org, it's only then that they would see his real face. The, right. the dictator, the tyrant who yells at people all the time and threatens you with sacred arts and trias chita. Before that, he's this loving, benevolent incarnation guru figure. But once you commit yourself to him, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde. Like suddenly the friendly, loving, benevolent guru you came for is replaced by an angry dictator who thinks that you're worthless and that you have to earn your right to be there to serve him. It's really crazy. Um, it is, and it's and it's disturbing and and uh, kind of scary yeah. that that a person like that is able to play people by going back and forth between the naughty and the nice, right? And the naughty and the nice. And yeah. you want that nice so bad, you will put up with so much naughty to get That's it. Right. You know, That's it's, it's, there's something about us and it's all yeah. of us, you know, it's, there's no, I don't think there's anybody immune from this if it's framed the oh. right way for, for them to hear it the way they want to hear it, you know? I mean, uh, one of his closest disciples who helped him flee India to escape a rape charge has four degrees from Harvard, Stanford, MIT. Like he is a very highly educated, intelligent multimillionaire who fell for everything Nithi has ever said. And, you know, he has people who are executives at Facebook who are following him, and that's how he can get away with all of his disciples have fake names on their Facebook accounts and, and all these fake profiles. An ordinary person wouldn't be able to get away with that. But he can get away with it because he has disciples in high places all across society. So, I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of shit over the last month since blowing the whistle on him by people saying, well, 
you seem intelligent. So were you a co-conspirator with him? Did you know he was bad? Or are you just mad at him now? And no, I fell for him, just like so many other people fell for him. And, you know, a, a sad thing in the anti-cult community is that a lot of victim shaming goes on. You know, people will say, okay, so he told you that you're an incarnation of Parvati. Didn't you know that that was the same lie he told to Arti Rao, his most public rape victim? Didn't you put two and two together and realize, well, if he's saying this to me, then she must be telling the truth. But the answer is no, because at the time that I was there with him, I had never read her statement or watched her video because we were told not to. And it, it's interesting, like I've heard people say the same thing about Scientologists. Haven't they read the book Going Clear? No, they haven't because they're told <laughs> that that's bad, right? Exactly, so, that, exactly. And they're not going to, you know, you try to communicate no. that there is a self-policing that goes on. Yeah. And once, once the guy's got it installed in your head, once he lives there, and once you've adopted this person as this authority figure, then their advice you know, yep. becomes orders, becomes direction for your life. And, and you don't buck that system because this is a person who's dangling a carrot in front of you, promising you the sun, moon, and stars. You want you know? Don't you want to be guaranteed that when you die, you'll go to Kailasa, the eternal abode of Lord Shiva? Well, if you listen to Arti Rao's rape case, you will lose your place in Kailash. You will never be a part of Sangha ever again. That if you listen to an anti-Hindu element, you become an anti-Hindu element. Our version of SP is anti-Hindu element. Yep. Yep. A-H-E. Yeah. 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 Anti-Hindu <laughs> element. A-H-E. Interesting. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So, okay, so how do, so, so you find yourself in the middle of a cult. You know you're in a cult yeah. now. Yes, what I know happens? I'm in a cult now. And I'm trying to reform the cult from within the cult and say, hey, guys, let's stop acting like a cult. This is bad. <laughs> um, and they're And they're saying... No, they're justifying. We are not sleep deprived. We're manifesting the power of kutakesha, going beyond sleep. We're not malnourished. We're manifesting the power of nirahara. We are beyond food. N Niti isn't yelling at us like a dictator. He's blasting us through ferociousness to break our patterns. You know, we are not humans who need what a human being needs to be healthy. We are superhumans. We are beyond that. The kids aren't kids. The kids are incarnations being trained for their missions. So don't treat them like children. They are above you spiritually. And that means that they can, they can take even more harsh treatment than you can because they are these great incarnated beings. Oh my so, God, man. That's so, a really terrifying parallel with Scientology and the Sea Org because that yeah. opens the door to some really, really dark places with yes, those kids. Does. Yeah, and, and so that kind of brings us to my exit from the cult. Yeah. So Niti called me and five other women to his bedroom one night. And this is after I hadn't seen him physically. Like there, there had been more than a week that he hadn't come to the stage for his discourse. So it, it had been a while since we'd seen him. He called a group of us to his bedroom and he, he had us all sit down next to his bed and he held our hands and he hugged us and he said, 
that we haven't been properly informed about the severity of the legal cases against him. And he told all of us that there were people, anti-Hindu elements within India, trying to kill him and that he would no longer be able to physically live in India because it's too dangerous for him. These anti-Hindu elements are trying to destroy his mission and kill him. So he was leaving and he told us it's going to be really hard to live here in this campus without him physically there. So he gave us all blessings that we could return to our lives. You know, we could drop out and go home if we wanted to. No hard feelings. He doesn't expect us to suffer it out there without him. And of course, we all fell into the, he had tears in his eyes. Ranjita was there standing to the side, like, you know, with her head hiding, head in her hand. Um, so we all fell, felt really bad for him and, and declared that we would not leave. You know, even if he's not there, we'll stick it out. We didn't realize he was actually about to be convicted of rape and that he was fleeing the sentencing because we didn't see the news. So we actually believed anti-Hindu elements are trying to kill him. So he left, you know, very soon after that. And his team published really obviously photoshopped pictures of him supposedly in Varanasi. But we all knew the original pictures that they had kind of cropped the background out and, and pasted clumsily onto the background of Varanasi. For example, the shadow went in the wrong direction. Like the buildings are here, the shadows are going this way, his shadow goes that way. So we, we saw that it was fake. And that's when I suddenly realized he lies to everyone all the time. If this is a lie, what else is a lie? And around that time, they sent me to Toronto. And I didn't question why he lied about being in Varanasi because I believed the lie that people are trying to kill him and he had to flee. So I justified it to myself and decided, okay, he has to pretend he's there to throw them off the scent so that they don't find him and kill him. So they, they called me one night and sent, and by the way, I mean Nityananda with Ranjita and said, Niti needs some kind of diplomatic immunity. Um, he can't live in India anymore, but his passport is expired. He doesn't have a valid travel passport. So try to get him political religious asylum in Canada. So they sent me to Toronto. They told me to make any contact I could with the Canadian national government. They specifically said, reach out to Trudeau for help. And they, you know, and it, it's, in hindsight, they, they are so stupid that it was painful because I said, Canada's capital is Ottawa, not Toronto. So if you want me to reach Trudeau and the national government, don't send me to Toronto, which is like two, 200 kilometers away, same province, but wrong city, you know, send us to Ottawa to do this. But they said, no, we don't have a home and devotees to take care of you in Ottawa. So do it from Toronto which, I mean, I might as well have done it from Timbuktu. It's, it's anything I did had to be online if, if I was based in Toronto. What's I, so I, stupid I, about that, too, is it's not like they didn't have the money to put you up in Ontario oh, or Ottawa. Definitely. No, the, this organization was estimated by the court as being worth $1.4 billion. That's right. how much he swindled. Because, for example, that Mahasadashi Goham program where he called me a third-rate bloody dog that I hadn't done more for it, he expected me to bring 10,000 paid participants through my YouTube channel. 
And at the time I had 50,000 subscribers, he said 10% minimum should have been there in attendance, 20% if I had any inner space for him. The fact that I only brought 100 people meant I was a failure. That program at $15,000 a person had more than 1,000 participants. So that's like 13 to $15 million for one month. And this, this guy, Nitti, did nothing. It was his achari, it was his teaching team. Maha Yoga conducted the majority of that program. And the rest of us ran the food service, cleaned the hall, did all the preparations. He came onto the stage maybe three or four times in a week to touch people and to bless them. But we were told, he does all the work, you all do nothing. So yeah, the, the organization had more than enough money to put up as many people as they wanted in Ottawa but they're cheap. They do not spend that money. Um, when programs happen around the world, it's up to the local center to pay for it and to collect donations. The donations collected go to Nitti's charitable trust. He also has tax-free status. There's another Scientology parallel. His All these guys love, it's the coveted thing, tax exemption. The coveted thing. It's, it legitimizes them as a religion yep. and it makes, it makes their money untouchable. That's so right. he had one set up in Houston, Texas, one set up in Los Angeles. These charitable trusts, any money earned at a program through donations anywhere in North America gets deposited into those accounts. And any program fees and expenses, it's on the local Sangha members to pay for it. So people are constantly spending their money, not getting anything reimbursed back by the organization. The organization is getting richer and richer and nobody knows where the hell that money is going. Exactly. It, it's not getting spent on the people or on the programs or on construction. Um, we don't know where it is. Wow. So, Sound familiar, folks? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's, I can only laugh because otherwise I'll cry. Yeah, you know? yeah that's it. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's so, it's actually infuriating. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's taking advantage of a system, you know, it's a psychopath living outside the system yeah. because that's what they, that's what psychopaths do. You know, they can't live within a system. So anyway, it's just, ugh. so yeah. please continue. So I, I'm staying in a, in a house in Toronto, in Scarborough, which is one of the close little cities connected to the greater Toronto area. And there's about six of us in that house. Um, ladies sent from around the world, like the head of the Europe center is sent, the head of the Slovakian center is sent, um, a lady who is a, who is a retired school principal who has a, a doctorate degree in education, she's also sent there. We're each given different secret instructions that each other don't know about and we're told don't tell anybody else why you're here. Um, but because we're ladies, we, we talked over coffee and figured out that three of the four of us were there to try to get him political asylum. And I don't know why they didn't want us to know that the others were working on the same thing. But we started trying to kind of brainstorm and strategize how we would do that. Um, the fourth lady, the school principal from North Carolina, she was there to script out in a way that would be accessible to Western intellectuals what the superpowers of the third eye really are. So the four of us had rooms in the basement of this house. Upstairs, there were two of the local sannyasis who ran the Toronto temple. They were staying in the upstairs. 
along with a lady who was a volunteer at the temple who actually paid the rent for that house, and two of the kids from the Gurukul, the residential school in the ashram, one boy and one girl, they were sent there along with a chaperone, one of the parents, not their, not their mother, but the mother of a different kid in the school was sent with them as a chaperone. And they were supposed to go meet VIPs, so wealthy people or captains of industry or government officials. They were supposed to visit at least 10 per day to demonstrate the third eye power. And they were meeting maybe one or two a week, and they were getting yelled at badly for not having the right space to manifest more demonstrations. And yeah, the lady from North Carolina was supposed to go along with them and script it out and introduce them to Western people and explain what these powers are. And yeah, it was, it was really a crazy situation to be thrown into because none of us knew what the hell we were doing. But we were supposed to give daily reports about our progress. And the furthest I got was following Trudeau on, on Instagram and on Twitter and sending him messages. Hey, I have this persecuted Hindu guru who needs asylum. What should I do? And of course, none of those ever got open. Thank goodness. And I hope they never do. Um, because it's embarrassing in retrospect. But, you know, we believed Niti's life was in danger and we had to help save him. And... It was one night in that house in Toronto. These kids had spent their time demonstrating blindfold reading, body scanning, remote vision, and reading Akashic records. And the lady from North Carolina realized the little boy isn't saying anything. The, the, they were about 13 years old. The girl would start telling somebody, you know, I see stomach pain and you broke your ankle once while body scanning. And the little boy would just sit there and say, I'm waiting for Swamiji to reveal the answer. And eventually he would just say, nothing is coming. So she questioned him and said, why are you not body scanning? Like you were doing stage demonstrations in India. Why did you stop? And he told her he didn't actually have any of these so-called third eye powers. And so one night, she and I were discussing what to do about this to help the kids complete with their loss of power when the two kids came downstairs. And the little girl sat down, kind of put her, rested her head on my lap and started to cry and said, we're scared. We don't want to go back to India. And I asked, why not? Like your, their parents lived in the ashram in India and their friends were all there. Their guru was based there. And I said, why? Why don't you want to go back? And she said, well, we love it here in Toronto with you. We, we get to sleep at night. We get to eat. You know, we get to, um, you know, we get some downtime every day to read. They told us that while, like the Gurukul, the way the ashram works, I should explain, in India, it is such a huge compound. It's, it's I don't know how many, like maybe 50 to 100 acres. Where the kids go to school is kept separate from where my social media team was based or where the programs team was based or where the kitchen team, you know, each ind independent team in that campus does not see the other teams. So none of us knew what the kids were up to. They told us that they were regularly sleep deprived and forced to stay up all night practicing these third eye powers. And that if any kid fell asleep, there were other kids given buckets of water told, go dump this on the head. 
You know, if some kid falls asleep, they dump water on their head, wake them up. And that they're not allowed to eat their dinner or to even get up to go to the bathroom. Like a lot of kids went in their pants because they had to sit there all night. They couldn't go to the bathroom, drink water, eat or sleep until every student of about like 100 plus kids successfully did remote vision, blindfold reading, body scanning. And she said that after five days and five nights of, of no sleep, sitting on this hard stone floor, starving, they could smell the food, food had been brought into the hall, but they weren't allowed to go eat it until they manifested the powers. Suddenly all the kids just started cheating for each other. So a kid doing the body scanning, that kid's partner would say, okay, just say anything, say whatever you think of. And then the kid would say, I see you have a headache. And even if the kid didn't have a headache, they'd say, yes, correct, success. And then they'd raise their hands and say, we've got the power. So they all started cheating for each other. One of the kids realized that when the blindfold was on for the blindfold reading, it was fairly um, ergonomically designed. So it had a tight seal to the skin. But if they put it on and then raised their eyebrows, it would create a gap between the blindfold and the cheekbone. So if a paper was held under their chin, they'd be able to read it if their eyebrows were raised. So they all started cheating at the blindfold reading, the body scanning. They'd make shit up for the remote viewing and the other kids would just say, yes, 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 that's correct, that's correct. And they had to do that. I mean, nobody should say that these kids are, are bad cheaters because that was their survival instinct kicking in. The only way they could eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom is if they cheated. And so this little boy, yeah, this little boy told me that the reason he was staying silent in the demos is that he doesn't want to be a liar. And if he can't think of anything, if he doesn't see the information revealed, he'll stay silent. And the little girl was brainwashed to believe that whatever idea popped into her head, that was the message coming from Kalabhairava, who is the deity Niti claims they're all channeling when they do it. So she would read some of these Akashic records. A person might ask her, should I get married to my partner? And whatever she thought of, whether she thought yes or no, she'd say it. And people would make major life decisions based on what she said. And here they were telling us it's all fake and they're cheating. And then she said the real reason she's afraid to go back to India is that they don't want to get beaten again. And this was when, like this was the biggest shock for me because we were told that the Gurukul is nonviolent. One of the vows we take in that organization is ahimsa, which means nonviolence. And she said that on the morning of December 31st, 2017, during the Mahasadashivoham program, the teacher had entered the girls' dorm before the kids were awake in the morning and started screaming at them that it was their fault that the thousand program participants weren't manifesting powers and that Niti was suffering because they let him down and that they are too you know, spiritually inept to feel his pain. And so the only way they can feel his pain is physically. And she gave one of the girls a stick and made that girl beat all the other girls and was told beat them until they either bleed or cry. And I asked the little boy, because the girls dorm and the boys dorm are separate, I asked him, did the boys know that this happened in the girls dorm? And he said, yes, 
and that the same exact thing had happened in the boys' dorm. You know, a 17-year-old boy had been forced to beat all the other boys, including six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And he said that that boy who had to beat the others suffered worse than the other kids because when it was finished, he just collapsed and cried. And, you know, the, the little girl who beat up all her friends did the same thing. And I, I, asked him, I have to ask you a couple of questions here because I'm kind of sick to my stomach right now. Yeah. Um, are there laws against this sort of thing in India? I'm only asking because I don't want to assume anything. I would assume that yeah. there would be, but are there? Well, my Is guess- Is it illegal to, to beat kids? It's illegal for an adult to beat kids. And I think the reason they made kids beat other kids is so that nobody would be charged because it's not illegal for, a, they call them juniors and seniors. It's not illegal for a junior to beat another junior. I get that that was the strategy there. Of course, the kid was ordered by an adult to do it. Right. That was the first time any of us had heard about kids being forced to beat other kids. And I asked I, them, I do want to interject one thing real fast. When I said that that opens the that whole attitude, opens the door to very dark places, this is exactly what I was talking about. Right. Yeah, and I'm it, sorry, continue. That's okay. No, it was like the worst case scenario. I, I looked over at my friend from North Carolina, this retired school principal who had promoted for years that this Gurukul school is the most nonviolent place. Kids don't even get yelled at here. And we kind of looked at each other with our eyebrows raised, like, what the, f what, how do we even move forward from here? So the first question I had for the kids was, why did your parents not pull you out of the Gurukul right after this happened? And of course, the kids were told that if they tell their parents about the beatings, that would be Guru Droha, and that their entire family would miss the possibility for enlightenment. So this little girl and the little boy who had been starved and sleep deprived and tortured and beaten, um, she said that you know, even beyond that, the kids were in seclusion in the dorms for the next, you know, up to a week for some kids. They weren't allowed out of a caged off area until their bruises and the, their welts and their black eyes healed. They weren't allowed out with the rest of us as long as they had visible injuries. So on the outside, we were all told that the kids are doing completion, prayaschita, that they're sequestered in their dorms until they are complete. But what that was a code word for was that they were healing their visible injuries. So I was shocked and I, and I got mad. And I said like, okay, they told you it's Guru Droha to tell your parents, but nobody told me that it's Guru Droha to tell your parents. So I started dialing um, the little girl's father and mother who were on my Facebook contact list. I started calling them through messenger and that's when the lady who was the Mahant of Europe came out from her bedroom. She'd been eavesdropping on this whole thing. We didn't know she was listening. She burst out. She took my cell phone from me and she said, I have to tell you not to do this. You know, Swamiji has a higher purpose for everything. And if they were told not to tell their parents, you don't want to set them back spiritually by taking matters into your own hand. And, you know, she talked me into reporting it internally. I wanted to call the police. I wanted to call the parents. 
but instead I was talked down from that and, and was told, report this directly to Niti. And at that point in time, he was in hiding. He was in South America. We didn't know where in South America. He didn't tell any of us. We just knew he had found a way to escape from India to South America illegally with an, with a, an expired passport um, while there was a non-bailable arrest warrant issued for his arrest in India. So he really fled. He, he absconded. And his Facebook account was inactive at the time. It was closed. So the only way I could reach him was through Ranjita, his secretary. So I sent her a secret conversation message in Facebook Messenger. That's where it, it deletes itself after a certain number of seconds because, you know, that's what my Mahant of Europe friend told me to do. And I told her the kids here are very, very traumatized from the December 31st beatings what is being done to heal these kids? Like, why did that happen to them? And she wrote me back and denied the whole incident. She said, what December 31st beatings? I've never heard of this before. And that was complete bullshit. Um, what I believe is that they wanted to give me the opportunity of deniability. She said, the kids are exaggerating. They're making this up. They're trying to make you feel sorry for them. They're trying to get your sympathy because they have lost the space of manifesting these shaktis, these powers, they are defensive. Don't do anything, don't say anything, don't try to help them. Um, the incident is not real. And that's when I took matters into my own hands and sent a message to the little boy's mother who had been a volunteer in the Gurukul school. And I told her, I know what happened to the kids. How are they supposed to heal from this? And this was my way of testing, is Ranjita's denial of this event real or did it happen? And, you know, this, this lady, the mother of that little boy who was in Toronto, wrote me back and said, it's very sad what happened to them. Most of the kids are still traumatized, but we're helping them complete. So I know that incident happened. And since then, I've heard from parents of other kids whose kids committed the Guru Droha and told their parents. Um, there's a lady named Vinuta in, uh, in Bangalore. She removed her child from the Gurukul and since then started warning the parents of the other kids to get their kids out. And she was demonized by the Sangha. They accused her of drug smuggling and they accused her of trying to pimp out her husband to sleep with female sannyasis in a total character assassination attempt so that people wouldn't listen to her when she said that her son had been abused in Gurukul. And, you know, she wrote a really powerful public post on Facebook about the atrocities in that school. And then she deleted it really suddenly the very next day and, and wrote a message saying, I'm grateful to Niti for empowering me and strengthening me with his teachings. I'm completing, I, I won't talk against the organization. Um, I believe that she was silenced and threatened because her family live in Bangalore, which is very close to the main campus. Understood. And, you know, people have gone missing in that organization. There are senior officials who have disappeared without a trace. And you know there have always been rumors that these people were killed 
but we have no proof and no way to validate it. It, it really reminds me of in Scientology, the, the search for Shelley Mis Miscavige. Yeah. So we have people like Nyana Swarupa Swami and Magopika Swami who have disappeared without a trace. Nobody knows where they are. They're not in the Sacred Arts campus. And I know because people have checked. So where are these people? We don't know. Um, but, you know, after the kids told me about their beatings and I reported the incident internally because, you know, we had I had discussed with the lady from North Carolina. She said, you know, as a school principal, she's, she was a retired school principal, but she said one of the first things they teach an educator in their training is that when you find out about child abuse, it's your responsibility to report that incident. But she said, this is a weird gray area because the abuse happened in India. The kids who were abused were American, but they told us about the abuse in Canada. So she said, even if we want to report this, who do we take it to? And as properly indoctrinated cult members, we felt the best way to report it is internally within the cult. And so when I sent that message to Ranjita, we figured that was our responsibility, that's what we had done. The very next morning before we even woke up, the kids were in a taxi taken to the airport. They were back in the main campus in India within 24 hours. And we were told we are not allowed to talk to them anymore. So that's when I escaped. All of us got called back to India and I said, I can't go back now because my visa's expired. I need to renew my visa. They pressured me and said, renew it from Toronto with everyone else. And I said, I just lied. I said, I can't renew it from Toronto. I have to go back to my hometown to do it. So I, I booked myself a flight to Calgary. Didn't tell anybody I was flying. Arranged for myself to get a ride to the airport from a, a friend who had been a temple devotee. And I just got the hell out of there. Didn't look at Facebook for a month. Didn't look at my messages for a month. You know, shut out everybody. And I told my mom what had happened. But I didn't tell anybody else what had happened. And that's when I went through, you know, the, the greatest shock of deprogramming. Because I still believe Nitti was an avatar. You know, I still wore that stupid little necklace with his face on it and prayed to him to help the kids and, and wondered like, why is this all happening? And it took me a few months before I finally took that necklace off and started to realize in his organization, nothing is done without his instruction or his approval. That teacher would not have entered the kid's dorm and forced them to beat each other up unless he had either instructed her to do it or unless she had asked him approval and he approved for her to do it. He micromanaged everything. And that means he is a child abuser. And it was kind of like the wake up call I needed. I, I had become acclimatized to being abused myself and to seeing adults get abused, but somehow hearing what had happened to the kids snapped me out of it. And I, I could not be a part of that organization anymore. And so it was a few months after I left that I, I really threw myself into research, into cults and, and found out, you know, finally reached the point where I no longer idolized Nithi or thought he has a reason for it. Like all the jargon lost its power over me. 
and I deleted all the YouTube videos I had ever made promoting him. Um, while I was still in that deprogramming process, I had made videos saying, you know, I left because the lifestyle was difficult, but it wasn't for me. I don't want to take it away from other people by talking against it because I was scared of Guru Droha. You know, he had brainwashed us so powerfully that I was scared to speak out against him for about a year after leaving. And then finally one day, that changed for me about a month and a half ago when an update was made on Nitti's, you know, public figure Facebook page, the one I had started so many years ago, back in 2010 in his social media team. A statement was made on that page by Manyanatma Swami, his closest senior person who's in hiding with him in South America, saying that there are now anti-Hindu elements among the, the recently left disciples. She named five of my friends, including Vinuta and her husband who took their kid out of the Gurukul, um, including my friend Jordan who had been there. Uh, he took over the social media team after I left. Um, including a lady named Marion Braun from Germany, who was heading the causing team, making people make the phone calls, and a, a lady named Shreya Parikh, who was from Australia, who was also a longtime volunteer. They made a post on his page saying these five people are anti-Hindu elements, and that oh, and and also a man named Ashim from New York, that. These people are anti-Hindu elements and that they were running a drug smuggling ring inside the Adinam. Now, that's when I decided to go public about the child abuse. Because up until then, what I had done was privately written to the parents of the Gurukul kids. Um, any of the parents I knew, I had sent them a message and said, you know, I have a very credible witness who told me the kids are being beaten please take your kids out of this. Um, and I knew that these other people who were accused of drug smuggling had been secretly doing the same thing. So I knew damn well why those people were now being falsely accused of smuggling drugs. Um, I also personally know three men who had been sexually molested by Nitti, who were all told that if they ever tell anybody that Nitti molested them, there are kids who will accuse them of rape falsely accuse them of rape. So that's how he silences people who have been molested by him. When that post was made, I decided to strike preemptively before they accuse me of also being something stupid, like a drug smuggler, that, that none of these people were drug smugglers. These were all sincere people who gave all the money they had in the world and dedicated years of their lives to volunteering for this organization that bullied them. The only crime they were guilty of was waking up from the brainwashing and warning other people to get out. So I made a post the next day describing that whole incident of these kids in Toronto telling me about the December 31st beatings. And the very next day, I was declared an anti-Hindu element. They accused me of trying to start my own cult of anti-cults. They, two of the people who had been I think 17 or 18 when I was there, who are now, you know, over 21, claimed that back when they were kids, I had molested them, one boy and one girl. Totally false accusation. Um, I was accused of poisoning Nitti 
They said that I was a CIA agent sent to destroy Hinduism and that I attempted to murder Nithi by giving him what they described as poisoned chocolate. They said I was a member of Opus Dei being paid by the Vatican to destroy Hinduism and that I was sent there as an implant. I mean, they, they've you've been the a busy, you've been busy, busy, busy. I've been busy, busy, busy. Yeah, clearly. So, so they, they made me, uh, and the, of course, the most absurd of all their fake claims about me is that they claim that I'm a demon and that anybody who listens to me will go straight to hell. Now, this is an organization that used to claim to be Hindu that, you know, Nitti himself has said many times, hell does not exist. It's an invention of the Judeo-Christian church to scare people. And I, I don't think even Jewish people believe in hell. I think it's a fairly Christian concept. It is. But suddenly now he is saying that I will be leading people to hell. This is turning into a doomsday cult. And, you know, after I went public, um, because a lot of his followers were following me on YouTube, I made a YouTube video about this as well. And it kind of got the ball rolling on more and more people coming out. Um, one of my friends who was against me at first, calling me a demon and telling people don't listen to her, he finally watched the video and it clicked with him because he knew those two kids in Toronto and he had seen weird behavior from one of them, the little boy who lives in New Jersey. He had witnessed this boy crying to his mom and saying, I don't want to go back to India. So he suddenly understood what I was saying was true. He created a group called Nityananda Cult Survivors Official on Facebook. And we now have over 160 people who have jumped out of the cult who are sharing their horror stories, the abuse they went through. Um, now they're saying that I'm paying each of these people a million dollars each to do this. I have no fucking money. I, I'm, a, I'm an art school dropout who used to work as a tarot card reader who has now lost my faith in tarot cards because I blame my use of the cards for leading me into this nitty cult. I spent nine years of my life basically as an indentured servant working in sleep deprived conditions for free for that organization. I left and had to build my life back from scratch. And they claimed that I'm paying these people a million dollars each to become anti-Hindu elements. It's just ludicrous. So, well, this is all coming now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is all coming right now from the guy who's hiding out in South America from a, yeah rape That's charge right. that he's actually going to go to like he's been found guilty and he's going to go to jail he, he has absconded so the sentence hasn't yet been given because okay. he can't be sentenced in absentia right so he has so, absconded from the so rape this charge. is the guy who's pointing the finger at everybody else yeah, yeah. at everybody else uh he said that anyone who calls his organization a cult his exact words, like he is going through a weird public mental breakdown because he still appears most days for a live discourse on the internet from his hideout, I think it's in Ecuador. He went online and said, whoever calls him a cult is a violent vomiting masturbator. Wow. It's hard that's, to say that with a straight face. Like that's this. A, that is awesome. Crazy. I wonder um, how many I, times a day he masturbates because yeah. that... Well, exactly. You know, exactly. and there's nothing even wrong with masturbating. It's just he thinks there is. But he thinks there is. Right. So. Um, yeah. And, and he says that we all have a troll addiction and we should just move on with our lives and stop trying to seek attention by talking against him. 
And it's, it's interesting. Before I went public, um, I sent messages to both Leah Remini and Mike, you said Rinder? Yeah. I sent them both messages in Instagram that of course didn't get rid of saying, what should I do? Like, I just realized I'm also in a cult and I was kind of praying and hoping that one of them would tell me what to do. And when it didn't happen, I decided I'll just go public on social media because that's, that's what I have available for me. And now what's really flattering is that the organization has compared me to Leah Remini. And they're saying she's trying to get attention from the Nityananda group, just like Leah's trying to do from Scientology. And I thought, well, that's the best compliment I can get. Um, they made one photoshopped picture of me on Facebook that, you know, their, their whole organization is basically run on Facebook right now. That's where they have all their groups getting people together. Um, because they can't be in India right now. So when people have gone home, they keep track of everybody um, using a reporting method called JIRA and groups on Facebook. So they've circulated this picture of me that's photoshopped uh, with, a, with a pipe in my mouth and a cowboy hat and I'm waving a lasso. And it says the, the white racist Sarah Dirty Laundry, play on words named Landry, they're calling me Laundry. Um, you know, is, is trying to get attention by calling Hinduism a cult. And I mean, I'm not calling Hinduism a cult. Hinduism is a beautiful ancient tradition. Nityananda is a crazy cult leader and he is running a cult. And what's funny is that right after my first appearance on Ron's, Ron Miscavige's channel, Nitti actually declared in satsang, whoever calls me a cult are just as stupid as the people who call Scientology a cult. And he declared again, L. Ron Hubbard is an enlightened rishi who reincarnated and Scientology does so much good for humanity just like I do so much good for humanity. So it's, it's kind of like now he is, he has admitted once again that he believes in Scientology and he appreciates L. Ron Hubbard and he appreciates Scientology. He is so crazy, he doesn't even realize how crazy the things he says sound to all the rest of us. Well, and that's well, the thing, right? Because he's created his own reality. And this is yeah. usually the end game for these guys, yeah. you know, in terms of late stage cult, you know, yeah. uh, downfall or whatever, late stage cult you know, yeah. phase. I mean, it can go on for years. It's a kind of amazing how long it can go on for actually. But at the same time, this is also where uh, these are the times where things can get really hairy and, and then they explode, right? It's uh, and, and implode, I should say. So um, but there's a lot of money there. You know, there's yeah. a lot of influence there. So, yeah. you know, it's, it really is a matter of drumming up public awareness and, um, and, you know, law enforcement awareness is uh, to absolutely. You know, so I mean, there there are legal avenues being pursued that I've been advised not to talk about, but for sure the goal would be have him behind bars. And I mean, he is he has now made all of his sannyasis take a vow called apat sannyas, which means the form of sannyas that a person takes in emergency right before death. And he has made them take a vow that they are willing to sacrifice their lives for his mission. So we are very scared. We being the ex-Nityananda community, um, the survivors of his cult, are truly terrified that he is going to try to instigate some kind of a mass suicide. Or he's already committing character assassination against his detractors. 
we don't want to see that go a step further into actual physical violence. Exactly. Nobody wants that. Nobody and, wants uh, that. And you getting the story out in these other you know, 100 plus people also speaking up, also, you know, contacting legal uh, advice, legal authority, whatever, with what they know, that is what to do now. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, even though it's happening in a multinational situation here, hopefully Mm -hmm. the, you know, Indian authorities are all over this. And, uh, you know, because I, I, it is somebody's job to bring him back. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and that somebody needs to know that yeah. there's a lot of people relying on him or her to do that. Right. And I mean, the, the shit thing about this is that South America does not, most of the countries in South America where he's hiding, Ecuador, Honduras, um, they've got a program coming up in Trinidad and Tobago. So even this December, they're trying to swindle 15 grand out of anybody willing to go get his darshan. Um, these countries do not have an extradition process to India. So he's kind of walking like a free person despite not having a legal passport. Um, and despite being, you know, on trial in India for rape and multiple other crimes too, like racketeering, um, destruction of evidence, absconding, like he faces multiple crime charges. So you're absolutely right. He should be fully on trial and sent back to India and you know, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, let's say, let's say he's completely innocent of all charges. Mm -hmm. Let's say this whole thing is all just a bunch of crap, right? He still needs to go back to India to face the music. Exactly. You see what I mean? Like, even if he's completely innocent, he still needs to go do that. So, and and I don't, you don't think, I don't think that the guy is completely innocent. No, I, 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 I know 100% he's guilty. Yeah. And I know the people who have filed the charges against him, and I know they are not liars. And I used to believe his lie that they are liars and they are anti-Hindu elements and they are demons. But I know that I'm not a liar or an anti-Hindu element or a demon. So the fact that he's now saying this about me kind of proves to me that those people who came before me are also definitely telling the truth. I mean, sometimes it, it takes for, for you to be the target of their smear campaign to realize, holy shit, the other people they took smear campaigns out against must have also been genuine whistleblowers. They were also trying to warn us. And so, I mean, I've, I've apologized in videos to everyone who had ever tried to warn us and say it's a cult. All the people I used to say, Kali will curse you and you're a demon and you're wrong and you're an anti-Hindu element. Now I have to humble myself and say, you were right. I was brainwashed. I was wrong. Now let's work together and get these people free. The people who are still working for him as sannyasis. And, you know, I I would like to hope that he would never lead them into a suicide pact, but he has already told them stories about ancient Hindu people who sacrificed their lives when their god Shiva was insulted. He said that the Rudrakanyas, a a band of female disciples of Shiva, when Shiva was insulted, they killed themselves by jumping off the roof of of the temple, and that they were guaranteed a safe abode in Kailasa, Shiva's eternal residence, and weren't guilty of suicide because it was done to maintain their chastity to their god Shiva. So he's already planted these ideas in people's minds that it's a noble thing to kill themselves for him because he claims to be the incarnation of Shiva. 
I don't want to see it go to that extreme, but this is part of the reason why those of us speaking out are doing it so consistently and, and intensely, because as of now, I, I truly feel anybody who has a relative brainwashed in the Nithyan and the cult should not take it lightly. They should help their relatives get free, you know? If Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's not hard to get this done. It's, well, I should say it is hard, but it's not impossible. Right. There are, there are people who know how to do this. There are therapists who know how to do this or who know how to help people with this. There are a ton of resources online. There are groups that are put together. The International Cultic Studies Association is the first one that comes to mind. Um, there are others, right, who you can contact who can help with that process of how mm -hmm. do you talk to somebody who's in a situation like this? How do you get them talking to you? Because that's the more important part of it. You know, right. that kind of thing, right? How do you do an intervention? Yes. The this, this stuff is out there, you know. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something to brush off or think it's no big deal. It is. You're changing a person's life. You know, there are there are moral issues there. You got to make sure that you, you know, that, that you're not uh, harming this person in the name of helping them. I mean, that can happen. So there's a lot to know about this and it, and it is, but it's worth the time and effort because it is helping them. It is, it is a helpful thing to do to get somebody out of this kind of situation, especially when there's children involved. Yeah. You know, you want to be a grown-ass adult and go make stupid decisions for yourself, you go right ahead. But those little kids never had a chance to be asked whether they wanted to be part of this or not. They are Definitely. not. The, the yeah. free will and all of that and individual decision doesn't apply to them. Not mm -hmm. the same way it does to adults. Not in this kind of situation or in context. So. And the worst thing is their parents who should be protecting them are brainwashed in the same cult. And exactly. believe their kids are not children. They are eternal beings who are in the bodies of children, but they're the reincarnations of great yogis and great yoginis and gods and goddesses. And that anything done, for example, somebody was asked, what would you do if you found out that your kid really had been beaten and hit in this gurukul? And she said, I trust Swamiji so much. This is a mother of one of these kids. I trust Swamiji so much that I would know my child had been beaten for the sake of their manifesting superconsciousness. So that means these parents are not mentally fit to provide their children with a safe, healthy lifestyle environment. You make and a very good point there. And in the United States, it would not be that difficult to get child services all over this. I have wow. no idea what the situation is in India with this. Yeah. The majority of the kids who attend that gurukul are American citizens. Yeah, um, in, a, in a foreign country, it's a complicated situation just from that. What yeah. a mess. What a mess. But anyway, I, I do believe, and thank you so much for letting me share this entire long story on your channel, because I, I think the more times we get it out there, the more likely somebody is to realize, wait a minute, my sister and her kids are in this cult maybe I should help them get out, you know? I really believe that as a grassroots effort, families can start pulling their, their relatives back to reality and maybe familiarizing themselves with the Nithyananda cult jargon will help because Nithi calls the real world, like the, the world that you and I are living in, he calls this the Maya matrix. Maya means illusion, 
matrix like the matrix movies he says this is an illusionary program inserted into reality to make us believe that we are human beings having this experience where we have to pay taxes and go to work and live on the grid but that when somebody joins his audinum they are living beyond the matrix in the true reality so these people are so heavily brainwashed that they believe the real world is an illusion and that the cult is the reality that takes them beyond that illusion and so they're likely to retaliate and say things like it's your maya matrix conditioning that believes this is child abuse you don't understand this is the ferociousness that wakes up their superhuman abilities or you don't realize that sleep deprivation is a maya matrix fraudulent false concept these kids are manifesting kuta kesha they're going beyond sleep you know these are people who have been seriously abused for years who have been convinced that the abuse is a gift and it's a good thing and they're grateful for it. So they don't want to be freed from it. They will try to drag other people into it. But that doesn't mean that you should say they're, they're a lost cause because I was right there as brainwashed as anybody else. Um, and even when I left the organization, I felt like a failure at first. You know, maybe I wasn't good enough or ready or, or prepared for that. You know, Nitti told me to come back and change the system and fix it and make it less culty. I failed. I'm not able to do that. You know, a lot of people, when they leave, they have guilt and they think that it's their incompletion, that they weren't good enough. And those people also need some counseling and some help so that they can get fully deprogrammed and move on with their lives. So, you know, maybe you know if you can share those links that you had mentioned chris for for these oh well, absolutely no of course i'll put the uh i'll put the ixahome.org oh sorry ixahome.com link mm -hmm. below that's for the international cultic studies association which is pretty much the the american canadian hub of mm -hmm. of cultic activity or therapists researchers you know so sociologists people who are in the know on this stuff you know tend to aggregate their it's not a forum, it's not, there's not like a you know, message board there, but there are resources listed there. And there is a ton of educational material, scientific right. papers all the way down to stuff anybody can read. And, wow. um, and that's just the beginning. You know, there's Steve Hassan's work. There's my entire channel. I've posted probably a hundred videos on cult intervention, cult recovery, how to talk to people who are in cults. I mean, this is all, literally, I have a video called how to talk to people who are in Scientology, wow. you know? Like this yeah. is not hard to find, you know, yeah. let Google be your guide here. Google is your friend, right? Use it. Awesome. There are tons of resources out there, but it does take, unfortunately, proactive work because because yeah. um, that's just what it takes in this world. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. And I, I think more and more people are waking up as they see more and more people drop out of that cult and other cults too. Like I've, I've, since I've gone public, I've had people write to me who were in totally different cults. And say, I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, and, and just yeah. exactly the same thing I was doing to all the ex-Scientologists who were speaking out saying, wow, you helped me realize I was in a cult. It's a chain reaction. So, you know, anything people can do who have experienced cult abuse to share their stories, it does make a difference. And those of us waking up from cults and Googling you know, cult survivor, cult escapee. We do find those things online and it's helpful to hear how other people got out of it. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. 
Okay, well, this has been a marathon episode yeah. here. In fact, this is probably, I, I'm thinking about how I'm gonna post this and I'm probably gonna divide it into two or three videos, right. but I'm gonna post them all at once. Oh, awesome. Okay, so people can just kind of go through, but they'll be in chunks that they'll be manageable. So I think I think we'll do it that way because this ended up being longer than either of us expected, but it was of necessity. It's no, 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 not even something to be sorry about. This is nine years of, you know, of, of, of life being packed together. And as I've learned, you know, it takes a while to say this stuff. So uh, you're doing fine. You know, in fact, you're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story, for going public the way that you have. This is very important. And uh, just by speaking out, I can tell you from my own experience, that alone, exactly as you said, does help people. Yeah. So good on you. Thank you so much. And you know, it's cathartic too. Yeah, having bottled in and self-blamed. And, you know, I, I suffered with tons of guilt for being his top recruiter into that cult. So I feel like it's kind of my civic duty now, as much as I had recruited people into it, now that I'm awakened out of it, I should do my best to pull people out of it too. So I've been yeah, I totally understand that sentiment. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, okay. All right, folks, any questions, comments, feedback, and I'm sure there will be plenty, leave it in the comment section of these videos. Uh, I am definitely interested in what you guys have to say about all of this. And um, hopefully if you have the opportunity or you know somebody who has been involved in this or something like this, you know, step up, let them know, be, say something. It doesn't have to be screaming and yelling, but say something. But thanks for coming around and watching this whole thing, guys. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.